really think we we should have the rights of the poor front and center, that the developed should be consenting to their own development, and they should have the right to refuse things that are not for their own development. Hello and welcome to the third episode of the Drayton Discourse, brought to you by the Economist Society here at UCL. My name is Yash. And and I am Olaf, and we are thrilled to be joined today by one of the world's most renowned development economists, Professor William Easterly. Professor Easterly is the co-director of the Development Research Institute at the New York University. He has published more than 60 peer-reviewed academic articles and has written columns and reviews for the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and Financial Times. Further, he has authored many books, including The Tyranny of Experts and The White Man's Burden, the latter of which won the prestigious F.A. Hayek Award. Professor Easterly has been named among the top 100 global public intellectuals by the Foreign Policy magazine, and Thomson Reuters listed him as one of the highly cited researchers in 2014. He has also had a career in the World Bank. So without further ado, let's straight get to the interview. Thank you, Professor Easterly, for joining us for this episode of the Drayton Discourse. And so now beginning the the discussion regarding the uh, current scenario, especially the COVID-19 pandemic and the Black Lives Matter movement. So the first question we have for you is that has the COVID-19 pandemic in some way impacted our understanding of economic development? And what are the learnings that development economists have drawn from it? Uh, so let me say, I, one of, part of my uh, critique of experts is that we're very prone to seize on any topic that's newsworthy at the moment and claim that our expertise gives us special insight into today's newsworthy topic. And so I don't really believe in that, honestly. I have to just say, I, I know a little bit about economic development. I know nothing about pandemics or COVID-19. So I think that you should let the pandemic experts speak and and not ask the development experts. I don't think COVID gives any, it's not especially connected to development. I, I don't think development economists should be the ones that are commenting on COVID-19. Okay, that's uh, clear for us and uh, thank you very much. And uh, as you once uh, highlighted in the Columbia's Journal of International Affairs, for many years there seemed to be an unofficial taboo on discussing racism in development economics. And with that, the death of George Floyd, the the debate about structural racism has been rekindled. And how do you think that development economics can contribute to it in in any way? Yeah, I think we do need to confront race and development economics. I mean, it's always been kind of obvious that most of the people driving the agenda of the donors and the development agenda were white people of privilege and the people in the developing countries were non-white people who did not have as much privilege and power. So I think it was, you know, we were not really open about the fact that development was an era where sort of white experts were in charge in sort of a paternalistic and sometimes it could be kind of condescending way, which was really, really not good. And so I think this, this moment gives us another chance to confront this issue of race and development. I mean, I feel myself that I, I benefit from undeserved white privilege that uh, 
you know, you're interviewing me now instead of some, you know, well-qualified African development economist who knows a lot more about Africa from the inside than I do. And I think, uh, I think I undeservedly benefit from having too much prominence talking about Africa and African scholars don't have enough prominence by comparison talking about Africa. And that, that really is wrong, I think. Yeah, thank you so much for that. And uh, moving the discussion on to your general research, like you mentioned Africa already. Now, uh, in your brilliant book, The Tyranny of Experts, you discuss the various blind spots of development and technocratic organizations when it comes to helping the poor. Uh, one of the things... Sorry? The book was, who decided the book was brilliant? Was that, was that, yeah, we, <laughs> I read a lot of reviews and a few chapters from it. And I really enjoyed it. And well, some people might disagree. <laughs> maybe. So uh, one of the things you contest is this belief that, you know, organi these organizations support development in a purely technical and apolitical way. So could you talk a little more about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, a lot of academic development thinking is very clear about how institutions are the key to development. And by institutions, I think we, we usually mean political and economic freedom, which means the, the rights of the poor respecting the property rights, the political rights, the democratic rights of poor people. And I think aid has not really reckoned with that view of development, kind of unintentionally it has seized upon the things that aid can do most easily, which is finance something like insecticide treated bed nets for fighting malaria. And is not asking sort of is the support for that bed net distribution, is it part of a rich country foreign policy agenda that is not about development, but might be something about the war on terror. You know, are we giving more aid to our allies in the war on terror in Africa and less aid to the, uh, those more democratic countries who are not our allies in the war on terror? And does that result in our allies like uh, Ethiopia, for example, over a long period of time, you know, using our aid to oppress its own citizens and then meanwhile, we're praising the, the longtime leader of Ethiopia, Melis Zanawi, as a de developmental benevolent autocrat, which is sort of doing harm to the cause of the rights of poor Ethiopians. And so that, that really bothers me about development, that we, we sort of acknowledge the importance of the rights of the poor in theory, but in aid, we, we disrespect them. And we actually give intellectual support to the other side, to the oppressors, to the U.S. policymakers who place their own defense needs above the needs of the poor, above the rights of the poor. And of course, the U.S. military itself can, when it drops drones on, on innocent civilians by mistake, can be violating the rights of the poor. So, you know, when we have an alliance between the war on poverty and the war on terror, oftentimes that can result in an even more disrespect for the rights of the poor than would happen under traditional aid. So aid tries to cope with that situation by saying, all we know how to do is the technocratic solutions of you know, financing more basic needs the poor have or basic goods like malaria bed nets. And we're gonna stay silent about the rights of the poor and nobody else is allowed to talk about the rights of the poor either in development. <laughs> and I really protest that censorship. I really think we, we should have the rights of the poor front and center, that the developed should be consenting to their own development and they should have the right to refuse things that are not for their own development. Thank you very much. And uh, going on the same topic, in a, a lot of talks we've been 
uh, we, we have seen this concussion taking one step forward into this casting its implications to the poor. And we, uh, however, would like to take one step back and ask you how did this carelessness or like a blind, blind spot emerge in these organizations? Yeah, so let me say very clearly, I don't think development aid and aid and development experts are not uh, intentionally opposed to the rights of poor people. I don't think they want to be violating those rights. I think it's more that they find that they have to concentrate on what they think they can do, which is just supply a volume of money and a volume of material goods. And they have to make their job work by sort of uh, looking away from any rights violations that might be implicit in that. Uh, I think it also has deep roots in history. I think uh, the development business really started uh, a long time ago as sort of a, an, a, something that served the interest of the United States and the United Kingdom. The United States, uh, you know, for example, had severe and racist restrictions on immigration from China to the United States in the 1920s. But the Rockefeller Foundation started financing development to China in the 1920s and 30s. You know, having development experts go to China and say, here's how China can become development if you uh, Chinese immigrants will just agree to stay at home, not go to the US where we don't want you. If you stay at home, we will give you aid and make China develop at home. And that was sort of an excuse and a distraction from you know, the, the rights issue that there was racist discrimination and persecution in the United States of Chinese immigrants. And so I think we've seen that same trend happen over and over again over time. You know, during the World War II, the British Empire was defending its, its role as a colonial power by saying it was, a, it was a benevolent autocrat that was promoting the development of colonial subjects in Africa. There was an Africa report that came out in the late 1930s, which is full of technocratic solutions to African poverty. That's another example of this sort of ignorant, of kind of willful overlooking of the rights of colonial subjects in Africa to determine their own political futures in favor of a British imperial, allegedly benevolent power that would do their development for them. And so it was very convenient to justify, you know, British power and American power and to kind of ignore the rights of those whose, whose rights were violated by those powers. And it sort of survived that way again during the Cold War when development became a tool to promote U.S. foreign policy interests with our aid to autocratic allies in the, in the Cold War against the Soviets. And now it's happening all over again with the war on terror and our aid to autocratic allies of the U.S. and the U.K. and the war on terror. Yeah, those are honestly some shocking examples that you've presented and how history serves as a backing for this, these blind spots in these organizations. Now, you often talk about Africa and other such developing nations, and we see that a lot of these nations are very culturally rich. And local cultures, beliefs, and traditions can be key to understanding, you know, how people react to incentives like de that development agencies provide them with. So do you think the research and development economics puts the necessary emphasis on these aspects? Yeah, so I think culture is really a, a thriving and fascinating area in development research. I guess I would say two things, one that is sort of cautionary and the other that is more hopeful that I think... Um, the cautionary note is 
culture can somewhat sometimes be used just as a more acceptable substitute term for race. That we say, you know, a culture is bad for development. And what we really mean is that, you know, a, a racial group has a less promising potential for development. And I think culture has been used that way, not so much in academic development, but in popular discussions about development for quite a long time. So I'd be very wary about that. Um, I think what's more hopeful is we do understand that sort of social norms and values do play a role in, in economic development. And those, those norms and values often have a root in, in the history in the past. So, you know, a famous study uh, by Leonard Wanchikan and Nathan Nunn finds that those African ethnic groups that were affected most by the slave trade, that were victimized most by the slave trade, have uh, less trust today. Those whose ancestors were victims have less trust today. And of course, less trust is not good for development because it really makes it more difficult to do uh, market transactions and investments to have less trust between the parties that are doing the transactions. So that's an example in which I think culture has been a, a helpful insight. And uh, you know that can make us more aware of, of ways in which culture can inhibit development, but also ways in which culture could change rapidly with uh, you know more favorable opportunities and incentives that could lead to a more of a culture of, of trust and opportunity in those same cultures that were scarred by past history. Thank you for this interesting answer, Professor. And now uh, you call yourself the expert on the other experts and have had uh, several heated debates surrounding yeah. your publications. And so uh, which other areas of economics do you think suffer too little of, of such controversy or lack being self-critical? And what do you think can we do to provoke the debate? Uh, well, actually, I think development is kind of <laughs> unusual in economics and how much it has kind of a, an implicit censorship in debates compared to other fields of economics. And I think that's because of the fear that criticism of foreign aid or criticism of development efforts will lead to less support from rich country taxpayers for official aid or would threaten the flow of donations to non-governmental organizations that are fighting poverty in poor countries. And that fear that criticism will, will inhibit the development fundraising effort for, for very worthy objectives, I think leads to a tendency to kind of mute criticism and to kind of like, you know, not really want to engage with critical views and sort of just pretend the critiques do not exist or refuse to have a debate about the critiques. And so I think that happens more in development than happens in other fields. And I guess the other way in which development is maybe different from other fields of economics is it's much more ambitious about what it's trying to do. I mean, basically development is trying to achieve, you know, prosperity and peace and, and democracy and, you know, high education and, and good health and all of these you know, as encompassed by things like the Sustainable Development Goals that have something like 148 different targets. So development is trying to do a lot more than other fields of economics. And I think that leads to a tendency towards a kind of hubris among development economists that we are pretending that we're much more powerful than we really are to change the world. 
and it leads to kind of a, not enough of something that I think we need a lot of in development, which is just humility. Right. I think there's a scarcity of humility in economics in general. <laughs> I think economists are not famous for their humility, especially those that are, you know, quoted on news shows or being interviewed. <laughs> uh, they always sound more confident than they really are. And you know, are probably internally more confident than they deserve to be. <laughs> so, and I think that problem in development is even worse because we, again, as I said, we're, we're much more ambitious about what we're supposedly able to do. And so that leads to a notable lack of humility among the experts. Pro so. Probably yeah. including myself. I'm probably not humble enough myself either. So all these critiques apply equally to everyone. Yeah, that is very insightful. Thank you so much for that. And now we've discussed your research, we've discussed the current scenario, and we thought we'd take the discussion to a slightly per and to a slightly personal angle. So we saw that you've tweeted a lot about soccer during quarantine and even like started discussing the Bundesliga as I saw in your tweets. So would you yeah. like to share with our audience some of your passions outside the academic world? Yeah, so I, I do love sports. Um, and I have some some affection for soccer, or as I should call it, football, yeah. from watching World Cup every four years. I do watch the World Cup, oftentimes with you know, international economists who are from countries that actually care about the World Cup. <laughs> <laughs> and I watch the Women's World Cup every year, <laughs> every four years. Uh, but honestly, the recent interest that I've had in soccer was out of desperation because <laughs> none of the American sports leagues are playing. So there's no baseball, there's no football, there's no basketball, there's no hockey. And so out of desperation, I started to investigate soccer leagues that I knew really nothing about, <laughs> like the Bundesliga or the Premier League. You know, I don't even know how they, how they decide who their champion is or what the teams are or anything. So I started to ask for advice on which team I should back on Twitter yeah. and got some helpful advice. <laughs> Thank you very much for that. And uh, now uh, we would like to know what are some of the qualities you believe make a better development in economist? And are there any that are maybe like different from what is required to succeed now? other areas of economics. Again, humility is really an important quality in development economics, that we, we know we're in a very, a, a field that tries to achieve very ambitious objectives with uh, kind of a limited body of theory and evidence to try to achieve those objectives. And we really need to be skeptical about anyone who claims to have an easy answer in development. I mean, I think that's this is sort of like the fundamental insight of economics that it applies even more in development that if if you see a hundred dollar bill on the sidewalk, it's probably not a real hundred dollar bill or else somebody would have picked it up already. <laughs> you know, that's sort of like our great insight in, in economics. There's no free lunch. Uh, if, if somebody suggests a very easy solution to world poverty, then the question should be, if it was so easy, why wasn't world poverty solved already? You know? Yeah. If it, it was so easy, it already should have been ended a long time ago, you know, and that's, that should be our central concern in, in uh, development, to just be skeptical of easy answers, which kind of pushes us towards harder work on the more difficult, difficult issues. I mean, I think also if maybe something that's maybe a, a kind of unknown skill in economics that maybe applies even more in development is to the feeling of, of reciprocity that we should be using in development, you know, how, 
how would I feel if a development expert was studying my problems yeah. and was suggesting solutions to my problems and was really super confident about what the solutions to my problems were? How would I feel about that? I think the ability to kind of think that way and to place ourselves in the shoes of those that we are supposed to be studying and benefiting, I think that's a really important thing in development because we do have a tendency, if we don't do that, to be very paternalistic and condescending that we know best, we know what is best for other people. We may even be tempted to force them to accept what, what is best for them, what we think is best for them that might be reflected in our willingness to sometimes even use military force to try to transform a country to do nation building like in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so I think the ability to say, you know, would we like to be invaded by uh, a foreign power that claims that it's, that it's all for our own, our own good and our own nation building and our own development, would we like that if we were on the receiving end of that? I think that sort of reciprocity, thinking about reciprocity is a very useful skill in development in that way. Yeah, thank you so much for that. And in your previous talks also, I've heard you emphasize on empathy as a required skill for uh, development economists. So now, so now moving on to our signature thought experiment as part of the Drayton discourse. So we usually ask our guests to you know, participate in the thought experiment and tell us uh, what they feel. And it usually involves time travel. So the one we've written for you is that uh, there have been a lot of iconic and defining meetings. Uh, meetings which have somewhat, you know, determined the course of economics as a subject. You know, there was Bretton Woods, there was the Paris Climate Agreement, etc. So if you could be present at one such conference or meeting and give a speech, which meeting would you want to attend and what would your speech be about? Well, definitely Bretton Woods. I think that was uh, the way in which Bretton Woods is sort of the original sin of the development, the development effort because Bretton Woods actually had a statement about the World Bank that it was not allowed to interfere in the political matters of its client countries, which it took to mean that it would, ironically, the World Bank later took that to mean that it should just lend to dictate, support dictators without asking any questions. I think at the time, the reason that restriction was put in because they anticipated at that time, the Soviet Union was going to be an important client of the World Bank they actually wanted the World Bank to be ready to lend to the Soviet Union for Soviet reconstruction. This was before the beginning of the Cold War when the Soviets and the Americans were still allies. So I think, you know, if, if I could go back there, I'd like to say, you guys listen, <laughs> you know, this development really requires freedom. You know, you really want to be promoting freedom to promote economic development. You know, you don't want to be on the Soviet approach to development. That is not good for development. That is going to destroy a country and destroy the rights of its own citizens. You don't want to be involved in that. And you don't want to be involved in any kind of Soviet light type governments that are involved, heavily involved in autocratic planning and coercion of their own subjects. You know, the, the cause that you really need to support in development is, is equal rights for poor people and rich people. The same democratic rights that you want for your own societies you should want those rights for poor societies. And if you're not, if you're not doing that today at Bretton Woods and you are hypocrites and you are colonialists and you're imperialists, but you are not development economists. Thank you very much for that, Professor. And now we'll move on to the audience question concluding our interview. So uh, this question comes from Finn. So thank you very, very much Finn for submitting the question. And Finn 
asks, what is a career like at an international or, or, or organization such as the World Bank? Yeah, so I was at the World Bank for uh, 16 years, the first half of my career. So I'm so old that I've had two, two long careers, one at the World Bank and one at NYU. <laughs> and, um, you know, the World Bank definitely had a lot of advantages. It was the, the it was probably the, organiz the, the organization in the world that had the most concentration of development thinkers and economists and researchers of any organization anywhere in the world. It was the biggest concentration of development research. And I think, you know, especially the research part of the bank was real, actually really a wonderful place to work for a very long time for me. And so, you know, if, especially if you can get involved in more of the research angle of international organizations, you know, I would actually recommend them as a place to work. So the, the only downside for me was that there was a kind of like, a kind of like hovering in the background of that development research was a sort of censorship. But if you cross a line and the lines were kind of pretty generously defined at the World Bank, you were actually allowed to kind of question and skept and be skeptical about a lot of things and have your research not be not be determined by a World Bank agenda, but just by what the evidence says and what the theory says and publish it in whatever journal you wanted to. I guess the line was you should not criticize the World Bank itself in your research. Does not have any finding that is too adverse for foreign aid in general or the World Bank operations in particular. And, and especially you should never, if you do ever find any, uh, any negative findings, you should never tell anyone about them. <laughs> you should keep them a secret. <laughs> Try to bury them in some obscure journal where nobody will ever read them. <laughs> and I think that's the, that's the thing that in the end, you know, really bothered me about the World Bank and motivated me to want to, to leave or to get myself fired <laughs> and, and move on to academia. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. And I think that brings us to the end of the interview. Thank you very much, Professor. So, yeah. yeah, great, great yeah. questions, guys. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Drayton Discourse. If you enjoyed, leave us a rating and subscribe for more content like this every month. You can find the interview on YouTube and get in touch with us on Facebook or Instagram. Our username on all platforms is The Economist's Society. Thank you once again and have a great day.